Well, good morning to you, and thank you for being here this morning, and I especially thank the elders for the invitation to come and be with you again. I've always enjoyed coming uh, up to Columbia from where I live and to be with you. I have a good friendship with Greg. He and I go back several years. First met him in Louisville, Kentucky. His brother was a deacon at the church where my wife and my children and I attended. And I first met Greg there, and we have always had a good friendship, and I respect Greg a lot. And I know you do, too. He's a good man. Um, the topics I've been given today uh, sort of get the meeting off to a start. And we're talking this week about what makes the Church of Christ different in, in different ways or different topics. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. That's where we'll start this morning. The 12th chapter of Hebrews. There's a verse I want to use there to sort of uh, set the tone for this particular lesson. Church discipline is uh, a, a subject or a topic that a lot of churches won't touch, and I wish that wasn't so, let alone do or practice. So to, to have a topic like this speaks well of this church, and I know you've heard preaching on this before. This will not be the first one you've heard at this place, I'm sure, quite sure, on discipline. But I want to start with a phrase, and I know you've heard this, tough love. We know what that is when we when we hear that, when we even say that. It's a phrase that's understood and practiced by good parents. And uh, such parents love their children enough to give it when it's needed because they want a certain outcome for their children. They don't have to be convinced of its necessity. But sadly, it's, it's, a, it's uh, getting harder and harder to find a local church that's willing to practice this very unpleasant task. It, the problem is not vague or unfamiliar, foggy language from the Scripture. That's not the problem at all. The problem in many local churches is an unwillingness to practice it. That's unpleasant. Now, we're going to admit up front, discipline is not pleasant. Look in Hebrews 12. The text is verses 7 through 11. The writer here is talking about fleshly fathers chastising or disciplining their children then making the correlation to the fact that God chastises His children on occasion, and it's something that has to be done. We'll just read verse verse 11. I know you've seen this verse before. The writer says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. It's not pleasant, but it's sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So any parent knows when you must discipline your child, uh, sternly or even lightly, for an infraction of the rules that you've given them and they violated that, we get no joy out of that whatsoever. So why would we think that our Father, our Heavenly Father, takes that any differently? And when local churches must discipline wayward members, we don't jump up and down the aisle and, and have a good time. We're not proud about that at all, but it must be practiced for the sake of souls that are now in jeopardy. You know, I, I, I thought about this. There, there's nothing more joyful than a lost soul being saved. Save yourselves from this perverse generation, Acts 2 and verse 40, Peter said. And in Colossians 1 and 13, we have been transferred out of darkness and put into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So there's nothing more joyful, there's nothing more positive about that. But the flip side of that is also true. 
There's nothing more sad when a saved soul becomes lost again. And that happens. And sometimes saints don't do as they ought to. They don't stay with their master. They don't stay true to the doctrine of Christ. And so hopefully this study will help us appreciate God's truth on this very unpleasant topic. And it will make us different. Not only from other religious groups out there, but even some, some of our own brethren who won't practice this topic. Sadly so. There's, there's two points I want to make this morning. And the first, let's, let's identify what I'm calling some scriptural admonitions. That is to say, some admonishments or some teachings from the epistles, mainly of Paul this morning, that help us understand what we ought to do if, if we have to practice church discipline. Saints can walk disorderly. These would just be simple statements, verses, and I know you've seen before. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Look there with me as we start this portion of the, of the lesson. The second epistle to the church at Thessalonica, verse 6. Paul writes, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, or some versions say who walks disorderly, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. Now there's a couple of things I want to point out about this passage. Number one, it says to walk, and that's talking about an habitual action, a course of living. It's not a, it's not a one-time slip-up, and we all slip up from time to time and we sin. We must seek forgiveness. But Paul is addressing those who walk in this way, who make it a persistent decision to continue in a path that's not according, as he says, to what you receive from us. We didn't teach you to act or to live that way. You didn't get that from the doctrine of Christ. And then he says that it is a, it's talking about a disorderly brother. My friend Jack will appreciate this. It's a military term. It's to be out of step, be out of rank, to be... Uh, uh, insubordinate, to uh, go against the rule, if you will. So this describes brethren sometimes who can become unruly or disorderly, and they don't uh, continue to live as they should. So there's one admonition that that, that happens. Let, let's admit that up front. Now, second admonition in now the first Thessalonian letter, chapter 5, is unruly saints are to be warned. Chapter 5 of that letter Verse 14, Paul writes, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all or with everyone. Uh, this, this word unruly, I like Webster's definition. It's almost somewhat humorous. Uh, not readily ruled or managed as in hair. We want, well, she has unruly hair today. It's just going every which way. Or he has unruly hair. That's going to pick on the women. But anybody can have unruly hair. Uh, and that's sort of the idea, but, but Vine says it's to be disobedient, to not be in subjection, and to be disorderly. And so Paul says here to these Christians, if you have saints at the church there, and apparently they did, he wouldn't have written this if, he, if it wasn't the case. He says you, 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 you do these things, you encourage those who are faint-hearted, you help uh, the weak, be patient, be be forgiving with everyone. But he started the verse with, you need to admonish or to warn the unruly. So when saints start showing these tendencies, these inclinations to, to step out of rank, to get out of step, and walk in ways that the apostles have not taught us, it's a church's obligation. It's an eldership's obligation to warn those saints 
you're headed in a path that is not good for your spiritual health. And you need to think about what you're doing. And so we need to warn our brethren who are unruly. Another admonition we find in the Scripture. They're to be marked or noted, unruly saints are. This time from the Roman letter, chapter 16. And look with me at the 17th verse. Paul, again, is, is wrapping up another epistle. And you always notice in Paul's letters, the last chapters are usually spent with with short little statements where say hi to this person or greet this person or do this or do that. Uh, sort of maybe we would end a letter if we wrote someone a, a letter or an email possibly. Verse 17 of Romans 16. Now I urge you, brethren, my version says keep your eye or to mark or to note your version may say. Mark or note those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. Now, this word in the Greek, you'll see there on the slide, it's the Greek word is skopeo, and we get our idea of any kind of scope, microscope, telescope from that Greek word. It means to literally keep your eye on something. So that tells us if unruly saints, if they first uh, have been identified as walking disorderly, they're getting out of step, and and then uh, we, we try to warn them with some brotherly admonitions, some brotherly uh, teaching, kind but firm. We've got to keep our eye on them. We just can't forget about them. Now, I know that everyone would, would identify with this next statement. Uh, most of us, maybe all of us, have been somewhere where we've worshipped and there are some saints who cause trouble. They are unruly in one way or another. And sometimes the idea would be, well, I wish they just would go away. But this, I call this the driftwood. Just let the driftwood get on by to her because there's nothing but trouble anyway. Let's just get rid of them and then we'll be at peace again and all will be okay. And as much as we might like that, we cannot adopt that mentality. We can't. It may be more peaceful for us, but, you know, the main concern is that person's soul. We can't just let them float on down the river and let them be somebody else's problem. We can't do that. So, uh, troublemakers need to be... Uh, watched, if you will, and keep our eye on them. This this is the same word that's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, totally different context, but I just wanted to give you an idea of the flavor of this word, if you will. That very familiar passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the last three verses, Paul talking about our outward man uh, decaying, going away, and our inner man is being renewed day by day. Verse 17, momentary light afflictions producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Verse 18 now. While we look, there's the same word, scopia. While we keep our eye on the things, not on the things which are seen, but on the things which are not seen. See, as Christians, where's our focus? Here and now? No, we keep our eyes up out of this world. And in the same way, Paul tells us, you keep your eye on those who are now correctly identifiable as unruly saints. Don't forget about them. You keep showing brotherly kindness and love, hopefully to the extent that we can gain that brother or that sister back to where they need to be. So, they can be disorderly. I'm, I try to put these in order that made sense to me and, and seems to follow a progression through the Scripture. They can be unruly. Then they've got to be warned or, or admonished. They've got to be marked or noted so we don't forget about them. The next admonition we see from the Scripture is that they've got to be addressed. At some point, they've got to be addressed. And by that, I mean this. 
We can't just ignore them. Oh, the situation gets better. Uh, who in here today would say, when there's a problem, let's just ignore it and hope it gets better? Nothing ever gets better that way, does it? We all know that. If there's strife between a couple, husband and wife, there's marital problems, well, let's just sweep it under that proverbial rug somewhere and maybe it'll get better. It doesn't get solved. If friends are at one another, if siblings are at one another, if brethren are at one another, if you have a, a business associate, maybe you run a business together and you all start seeing things differently and you, ha- you don't see eye to eye anymore, well, let's just agree to disagree and we'll just hope it gets better. It doesn't get better until you address it. We've got to face it at some point in time. So we, we've got to address this situation. Eventually they must be withdrawn from. Now, this point is assuming that after they've been identified as unruly and they've been warned and they've been noted or marked, we keep our eye on that, and they're not getting any better. They're not repenting. They're continuing in that walk, that disorderly walk, that habitual sin. Eventually the church is going to have to act. And sadly, this is where a lot of local churches are dropping the ball. They're just, they're just not doing it. Days become weeks, weeks become months, and sadly months become years. And unruly saints are never, ever dealt with. And that's not the Lord's plan. We know that from the Scripture. Back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, this is where we started our study together. And Again, we've already read um, uh, verse 6, the first verse listed there on the uh, chart. Well, let's look at it again. And then also verse 14 goes with it. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother, or you withdraw yourself from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition which you see from us. Drop down to verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person, mark that person, and do not associate with him, withdraw from him, so that he may be put to shame. So this idea of withdrawal. And let me interject a point here. I've also known churches, maybe you have too as well, they make this their first step. And that's equally wrong. We've got to follow all the teaching. We just don't need to pull out the hammer right now. And, no, let's, let's deal with them gently at the first, try to gain him, her, them back. And if need be, then we must eventually adopt this step if it's necessary. This idea of withdrawal, Thayer gives us this definition. It's rather lengthy, but it gives us a really firm idea in our minds of what's involved with withdrawal. It means to withhold fellowship uh, or association, our partnership, what we share in common. It's to refuse to acknowledge any longer as a partner anymore. It's to remove oneself. It's to abstain from interaction. That's how, or that's what is meant when we say we have withdrawn from brother so-and-so. We've withdrawn ourselves from sister so-and-so. That's what we must do as a local church. Now, We've withdrawn from the brother or the sister. This is something else I think is important. Unruly saints need to feel their shame. Second Thessalonians 3, we just read verse 14. Look at the last phrase of the verse. We do this so that he will be put to shame. Shame is a sense of wrongdoing. And sadly, it's a trait that is very much missing in our culture. And I know you would agree with that. We see this on many fronts. People out here walking around half naked. 
maybe even all the way naked in some respects. I don't mean nude naked, but just very much uncovered. Acts of crime uh, going on, robberies, killings, in, in broad daylight, no sense of shame whatsoever. And now we have situations in the Lord's body where we have saints acting in a way, and they don't seem to be bothered by it at all. No sense of shame. Scripturally, listen to these two examples from the Old Testament. Turn back to Ezra chapter 9. To me, this is a beautiful, beautiful passage that uh, hammers in on this idea of of a uh, sense of shame. Ezra, of course, led that second great return from captivity, and his task was also one of rebuilding. Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple, and Nehemiah built the walls. But in between, I believe Ezra rebuilt the spiritual condition of the of the uh, exiles. And he had a lot of work to do, a lot of teaching, and he got to, had to put them back on solid ground. Toward the end of his book now, the very thing that got them in trouble was idolatry. We know that. And before they even entered the land of Canaan, God had warned them in Deuteronomy 7, do not intermarry with the pagans. You'll start serving their gods, they'll take you away from me, and that's not going to be a good thing. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. And that's what happened. And God sent them away in captivity. Now they've come back, and in Ezra chapter 9, what was he told? Ezra was told they're intermarrying with the pagans again. They're going back and entering into those mixed marriages. And I can just imagine what Ezra would have thought. These people, have they learned nothing? Look with me, starting in verse 5. After he's been told about this, verse 3 tells us Ezra tore his garment, pulled some of the hair from his head and his beard, and he sat down appalled. Everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until evening offering. Don't tell me he was not bothered by this. Ezra was greatly troubled. Now verse 5. But at the evening offering I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hand to the God or to the Lord my God and said, O oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, O God. For our iniquities have risen above our heads, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. There's shame for you. He wasn't even guilty of the sin. But it's in the nation now. And I'm even so, I'm so embarrassed even to confess this to you. We haven't learned a thing from this captivity. That's how Ezra felt about it. We need to feel that way. Especially unruly saints need to feel this when confronted with their sins. Look what you're doing to the Lord's body, to the Lord Himself, and especially to your own soul. You're, you've put yourself in great eternal jeopardy by this course of conduct that you're now leading. Now, turn to the Jeremiah, to uh, uh, Jeremiah's prophecy, chapter uh, 6. And Jeremiah prophesied to many nations, not just uh, God's people. But let's, let's start. Um, let's, let's jump in at verse 13. I know that's in the middle of the context, but for sake of time, Jeremiah is now addressing the false prophets and the priests who were leading the people astray. Of course, this was before they were taken into captivity. Jeremiah 6, verse 13, For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain, and from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. 
They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. We'll stop right there. We live in a country where we don't have to blush anymore. There's no shame. And so sadly we have some saints. When they uh, start walking in this undisciplined, this unruly way, and we try our best to gain them, restore the brother with love and concern and teaching from the Lord's Word, uh, we want, what we want to do is get them to feel this sense of shame and to be uh, terribly embarrassed at what they've done to the Lord to his body, and to their brothers and sisters. So what we do is we withhold ourselves from them, him or her. We cut off all ties with them. We ostracize him, her, or them to get them to have this sense of shame. That's the point. And hopefully such a one will, will feel this great sense of loss. Now, I'm, I'm portraying this as leverage. Well, that's exactly what it is. It's leverage. We need to use it to our, to our benefit. Now, this will only work if a local church has a sense of family. If we have a sense of closeness, a close-knit group. I referenced Acts 2 and verse 42. The early Christians took their meals together with gladness. They had a sense of family. They felt together. If all we do is come in this meeting room three times a week and sit in our assigned seats, and I say that in jest, but we all sit in the same place. We all know that's how it works. And we don't interact outside these walls. There's no family sense there. There's none once We just worship with him or her. But when we spend time in each other's homes and we open ourselves up to each other, we're brethren. And we share what successes we've had, what heartaches we have felt. We've become a part of each other's lives. And that's an integral part of our daily, weekly routine. Then when one of us goes away, goes astray, becomes unruly, and we cut that off. See, there's your leverage now. That can work to the church's advantage to gain that brother or sister back. But if we are so detached from each other, and then we cut off that brother or sister... What have they lost? They haven't lost anything. Because there's no closeness there to have this sense of loss. Do you see what I'm saying? I think that's taught from the Scripture. I, I really believe that's the, that's the, that's the deal. Or that's the, that's the goal. It's to not be a, a cold, detached church, but to, but to have this sense of, of closeness. And the last admonition is that they're to be continually admonished. And I mean, after their withdrawal, again, back in 2 Thessalonians 3, this time verse 15, after uh, Paul says that they are to be uh, withdrawn from, that they may feel ashamed, he then says, Yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. They aren't the enemy. Satan's the enemy. Remember that driftwood thinking I mentioned earlier. We've, we've withdrawn from them. Well, it's okay, we're through with that. On to other business. We can never feel that way. Let me share with you a quick story. I wasn't even preaching it. This was years ago. We were worshiping in a local church. and 
there was a uh, it was some man or woman, but it was somebody had become unfaithful, and the church uh, withdrew from this person. And then we were just talking one time. I don't know what we even were discussing, but one of the members said, "Yeah, I saw brother so and so in the grocery store, and I went three aisles over to avoid him." No, that's not right. Well, it would have been so awkward to go up to him. Yes, it needs to be awkward for him. There's nothing wrong with finding and 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 withdrawn from brother or sister that's been disciplined by the Lord, running to him at the ball field or the grocery store, and say, "You know what? I sure do miss you. I wish you'd repent. I still love you. The church still wants you to come back. The Lord still loves you." I wish you, I mean, put the weight on them. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Because Paul says here, you admonish him. You continue to reach out to him. And, and try to get through to him or to her or to them if it's more than one. To gain their repentance. I believe that to be what the teaching of the scripture is. So they need prayers. They need encouraging words to help them repent of their, of their sins. Now, those are admonitions that we see from the scripture. And someone says, well, that's okay, that's, that's the theory. But there's more than that. I believe we have a case study. The Bible gives us a case study at first century church. And you know where I'm going now is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And let's look at that very familiar passage together for the next few minutes. 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. I believe there are statements uh, in this chapter. We'll look at verses 1 through uh, 7. And then 9 through 11, then we'll make our points. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's start in verse 1. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. <coughs> For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Now drop down to verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, swindlers, or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. But I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Now there's statements in here that I just want to quickly point out uh, that, that I believe speak to this issue. Number one, this text addresses the idea, and you've heard it say, well, it, that wasn't that bad what he did. What did Paul say? This idea that a young man was sleeping, well, maybe he wasn't a young man, he was a man, sleeping with his stepmother. And Paul says, even the Gentiles don't do that. 
So this idea when we have someone who's gone off in sin, who's now walking disorderly, and sometimes the brethren, well, I didn't think it was that bad. No, any sin is bad. And how are you going to slice it? Well, it's not adultery. Well, it may not be adultery. But that's not the point. The point is if it's, if it's behavior that is contrary to what the Scripture teaches in terms of how a saint ought to walk, it's bad. And we shouldn't minimize it by saying, well, it's not that bad. Paul addressed that in this text. He also addresses the proper mindset. The saints here had, had mourned about it. Or they had not mourned, they had boasted about it. They weren't doing anything. This addresses local churches who do not deal with unruly brethren. And Paul chastised this church for their failure in this way. He also addresses what an apostle would do. Look at verse 3. Paul says, now for my part, I'm, I'm not there in, in body or in flesh, but I'm there in spirit. My mind's already made up what to do about this. So if we are part of a local church, or maybe if, if an entire local church is struggling with the idea, well, how should we handle this? Here's a good question to ask. What would an apostle do? I know what this apostle did. Paul said he's already been delivered to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, verse 4. It also establishes a principle that discipline is a command of God. This isn't an opinion that we're offering. Look in verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus. When you see that phrase, in the name of, that means by his authority. We saw the same phrase back in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6. I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus. So it's a, it's a divine command. That closes the door right there as far as I'm concerned. It's not up for debate any longer. It must be practiced. It must be um, uh, uh, done to be pleasing unto God. Verse 5, I believe, tells us what should be allowed to happen. Verse 5. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, there's debate as to what that means. Uh, destroy his flesh how? Would he be, would he be killed? Would he be uh, annihilated? Will he be uh, destroyed in that way? I don't think it's literal. It's to be instructive. It's to be punitive. The only time I see this, this phrase, and let's skip the Roman passage just for a second. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1, turn there with me. I believe this phrase occurs one other time in the Scripture, and it's 1 Timothy 1 and verse 20, where Paul mentions uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander, he said, whom I have handed over to Satan. I've delivered them to Satan so that they will be taught or they might learn not to blaspheme. Now, if you totally destroy someone, where's the learning going to take place? There's no learning in that scenario. But here, it's a figure of speech. We're going to allow this saint now who's walking in this disorderly way. They've been identified. They've been admonished. They've even been withdrawn from. Then the church finally must say, regrettably, we must turn this person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. We're going to let this person suffer the physical consequences of the choices he or she is now making. And that breaks our heart to do that. But that's what we're going to do. Look in Romans chapter 1 with me. You notice in Romans 1, those three times, verses 24, 26, and 28, where the text says that God gave them up. God gave them over to their degrading passions. That's what God's done. When His creation chooses lifestyles that's not in harmony with His will, God gives up on us. He lets us, if that's what you want, then go right ahead and you'll suffer immensely if you pursue that. Romans 1, 
verse uh, 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire one toward another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons. Notice that now. Receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. That's what we're talking about here. Let them suffer those consequences. We wish it wasn't so, but that must be allowed to happen. That's what Paul said, do that. But the objective, destroy the flesh. Why? To save the soul. That's the goal of discipline. Churches want to save souls. Even the souls of its wayward members who have gone astray, then we withdraw from them so that their soul can be saved. Then verses 6 and 7 admits the damaging influence of sin not dealt with. Back in 1 Corinthians 5. Churches that let this go, ignore it, pretend it doesn't exist. What does leaven do? Just a little bit of leaven. You give it a, give it a foothold and it'll take over the church. Is that what we want to happen? Of course not. That's why we must deal with it. This is a reason, the reason why a local church must act with discipline. Who among us would not hesitate or who would hesitate to cut out any cancer from the body? Well, let me think on that for a few years and I'll get back with you. That's playing Russian roulette. We don't do that. We need to save the body. And if it means cutting out part of the body to save the body, that's what we need to do. Now, we've all heard the cries. Well, that's so harsh. That's so mean. No, that's not hard. Well, it may be harsh, but it's, it's loving. It's that tough love we talked about to save the body. And then verses 9 through 11. I'm going to put a star on the chart by this because this to me is where the rubber hits the road. We establish the principle of no social interaction. Paul says in verse 11, With such a one, no, not even to eat. You cut off all those ties. See, if we withdraw from Joe, and uh, he's no longer a, an identified member of the local church, but Joe's my fishing buddy. Joe's my golfing partner. We'll still go fishing and we'll go golfing. What has Joe lost? He didn't care about worship anymore anyway. He quit coming. But he likes to go fishing with you. He likes to go golfing with you. No, we've got to cut that off, see. No social interaction. With such a one, no not to eat. There's nothing more common than a social meal where we spend time together talking about wholesome, good things. And so we've got to tell Joe, hey, Joe, I love you. You're my brother. But I can't go fishing with you anymore. I can't do that. Well, why not? Because you're unfaithful. And I'd, 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 I'd rather lose catching fish with you and save your soul than keep on fishing with you and you go off to hell. That's what that is all about. So, uh, we can't send mixed uh, signals. We must all, be, and this is, I think, where local churches make a mistake. Even when eldership say, we're, we've, we've withdrawn from Joe, but then we have... Uh, let me put it this way. We have saints sort of sneaking off, <laughs> doing this behind the backs of the elders. What does that do? That sends a mixed signal to apostate saints, to wayward saints, that, well, it's not that big of a deal. No, we must all be united in this and send a united front. All of us care about you. All of us want your restoration. And the church has disciplined you, and we all respect that. And now we're all on board to try to gain you and win you back. 
Yes, it's unpleasant. Well, we don't have time to read this passage, but 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You read this in chapter 5 of the first letter. I've heard brethren say, well, it won't work. It's too harsh. You read 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11, and it works. They got that brother back. So, yes, there is a time to embrace and to, and to, and to show uh, positive love to that brother, but not until after we have the courage to do what the Lord said and to practice discipline to saints who are unruly, who are wayward. And then what a joy it would be upon that brother or sister's repentance to welcome them back and say things like, you know what, I sure did miss you, but I'm glad you're back. And you're back where you belong with us, faithful to the Lord. Then it's time to have the, kill the fattened calf, bring out the robe, bring out the sandals, but not until then. That's all the time we have for the Bible class period. I appreciate your attention and look forward to our worship together in a few moments.